everybody. You are listening to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. It's been a while since I have done the topic of Reformed theology, Calvinism versus Arminianism versus traditional Southern Baptist theology versus non-Calvinistic theology, however you want to label it. And so I decided to come back in today and address something that I've addressed many times before, but it seems to be something that uh, still has division, still has some confusion. And so I want to, so what I want to do today is talk about the issue of, of total inability and the nature of man and how all of that works biblically. Uh, Augustine's famous words in his book, The Confessions, hit a nerve with the British monk Pelagius, which really ignited the first big controversy in church history concerning the fundamental nature of man, the nature of, of human beings. And here's what Augustine famously wrote. Augustine said, "Grant." and again, the Confessions is one big long prayer to the Lord. So Augustine's talking to the Lord here in this quote. He says, Grant what you command and command what you will. You command continence, grant what you command and command what you will. Now, what does this statement actually mean and why is it so controversial and why did it ignite such a discussion and debate back in the 400s between Augustine and Pelagius? Well, Augustine comes with the assumption that humans, because of our sin, are unable, lack the ability to do or fulfill what God commands. So due to total depravity and enslavement to sin, Augustine would argue that humans lack the capacity to do any spiritual good. So therefore, God must grant or give that ability or overcome that spiritual deadness through sovereign means. In other words, humans are totally unable to to, to come to Christ, to believe in Jesus, to do any good. And so God commands it. God commands obedience. God commands repentance. God commands faith. God commands us to do spiritual good. And we cannot, so therefore God's got to grant what he commands. God's got to give us the ability to perform. And so Pelagius argued that, well, that, that means that God is unjust, That's not fair for God to require from man what man has no ability to perform. How can God hold men accountable for either accepting Christ or rejecting Christ or or, or having any positive response to Christ if, in fact, they don't have the ability to do so? So that has been an issue in church history going all the way back to the Augustine Pelagius controversy in the early church. And so there's a fundamental assumption that non-Calvinist or non-reformed 
theologians or those that do not hold to Reformed theology bring to the table. And this is the assumption, this is the um, fundamental understanding of human nature, and it is this. When God commands something, humans must therefore have the ability to do what God commands. Why would God command us to do something he knows we could not have the ability to do? In other words, you can say it this way with a trite little saying that maybe help you make it a little bit more sense. Ought means can. In other words, if if you're supposed to do something, if you ought to do something, if you're commanded to do something, then therefore you must have the ability to do it. And so when it comes down to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in order to receive salvation, the assumption is that human beings have the ability to repent and believe when the gospel is presented to them. Now, there have been four views in church history on this issue. And number one is the Pelagian view, Pelagianism, named after the British monk Pelagius, who had problems with Augustine's theology. And basically, Pelagius argued that humans are born neutral. We're born a blank slate. We did not inherit original sin from Adam. Uh, This was declared heretical by the early church in 418 at the Council of Carthage. And it's been condemned by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And so very few people actually are full-blown Pelagians. And I've never actually interacted with one until just this past week on a Facebook discussion in a group I'm with. Uh, There's a person I was interacting with, and he basically made the statement that... uh, Total depravity is a false doctrine. And I said, a false doctrine? So you don't believe in total depravity? He's like, not only do I not believe in total depravity, I don't believe in original sin. And I don't believe in eternal security. And I said, what do you mean you don't believe in original sin? And he went on to explain his belief, and it was full-blown Pelagianism. And he flat out said he believes men are born a clean slate. They haven't inherited sin from Adam. They choose to sin based upon their environment. And so I had never really interacted with a full-blown Pelagian. And so they're few and far between an actual Pelagian. Now, the next one is called semi-Pelagianism. Now, I am hesitant to use the term semi-Pelagian because it's been thrown around and it's been um, leveled as accusation against especially traditional Southern Baptists. And so I'm not going to use the semi-Pelagian title because I think it carries too much baggage, but let me just articulate for you what traditionalist or provisionalist Southern Baptists believe. Because you talk to those that hold to the traditional statement on Southern Baptist theology and those that are what we would consider the traditionalist non-Calvinistic camp, they are not semi-Pelagian, but what they do believe is that We are totally depraved in the sense that we have been stained with sin from Adam, but they do believe that we still retain the ability 
to respond either positively or negatively to the gospel call when presented. So they believe that the gospel call in and of itself, the call to repent and believe, God's clear revelation to repent and believe is sufficient enough to enable a response, that you have the ability to respond. You are response-able. You are able to respond. That is the traditional Southern Baptist view. So they affirm total depravity, but they deny total inability. Now, historically, Arminians and Calvinists have agreed that man is totally unable to respond positively to the gospel. Um, Arminians and Calvinists both look at the scriptures that we're going to look at, and they come to the same conclusion, that because of sin, because of spiritual deadness, because of enslavement to sin, humans are born in a state, in a condition, where they are not only spiritually depraved, but they're also morally and spiritually unable to come to Christ unless there is some type of grace that works in the life of the sinner to bring them to Christ. Now, that's where Arminians and Calvinists depart. They start from the same fundamental starting place of total inability, but they part in how God brings grace. The Arminian would say, yes, we are totally depraved. Yes, we are spiritually and morally unable to come to Christ. But their argument is that God provides prevenient grace or assisting grace. And that's given to every single person. And that grace is an assisting grace that helps them, kind of gets them over the hump, if you will, of that spiritual deadness. And it cooperates in their soul and ultimately, they can choose to accept or reject that grace. And ultimately, they're the ones that use their free will to come to faith in Christ. Now, it's not just a bare free will. It's not a libertarian free will without any assisting grace. There is a prevenient or cooperating or assisting grace that has to be there before. That's why it's called prevenient, pre, before a person will come to faith. And so... In Arminianism, yes, they're spiritually dead, but God gives provenient grace to everybody that assists them in making the right decision. But they can choose to resist or not cooperate with that provenient grace. But grace is needed prior to a person trusting in Christ because of spiritual deadness in the Arminian understanding. Obviously, in the Calvinistic or the Reformed understanding, we start at the same starting place that the Arminians do, that we are spiritually and morally unable to come to faith in Christ unless God does a work of grace. And instead of it being prevenient in the sense that it's assisting or a cooperative, we believe that it's a monergistic, sovereign grace that God brings only to the elect that will actually infallibly guarantee that they will come to faith in Christ. In other words, God overcomes the spiritual deadness of our hearts, grants us regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we respond with repentance and faith as gifts given to us so that we will, because we've been made spiritually alive, we will be able to repent and believe. Now, Let's first answer some objections that non-Calvinists may have to this whole idea that if God commands something from us, then we 
obviously must have the ability to do it. So the fundamental question is, why would God call us to repent and believe? Why would God tell us to believe? Why would there be all these passages in the scriptures about believing in Jesus if we did not have the ability to do so? Now, most traditional Southern Baptists and Arminians are not going to be bare Pelagians where they say, you know, we can just respond whenever we want. What I really want to deal with is the traditional Southern Baptist viewpoint because they understand simply the bare gospel being enough to enable a response. And so you will often hear them say things like this, God has given his gracious appeal to sinners to be saved, and that gracious appeal in the gospel enables the response. It's enough to grant a person a response. So uh, the Holy Spirit doing a sovereign, irresistible, effectual work of regeneration is unnecessary in order to overcome that deadness because they believe mankind is spiritually and morally able and responsible to respond because God commands them to respond. And why would God command repentance and faith if humans are unable to do that? Now, let's just answer some objections, and then we'll dive into the Scriptures. Adam was created upright, and in the garden, he had the ability to obey God's direct command. He had the ability to do what God commanded. So Adam had moral ability to respond positively to God's command. So is God unjust to require what humans do not have the ability to perform? That's the question. Well, yes, God would be unjust unless he first gave Adam the ability to do what he commanded. Everything's tied back to the garden, the fall, Adam. Pre-fall, Adam had ability, and God gave him that ability. Yes, God would be unjust unless Adam, by his own personal choice, brought this inability upon himself by transgressing God's law. Adam's choice in the garden to transgress God's law has far-reaching ramifications for us. So the non-Calvinist view that God must grant us or, or we must have the ability to respond to the commands of God, why would God give commands in Scripture? Why would God tell us to repent and believe if we didn't have the ability to do so? Is really a false premise that does not comport with the overall testimony of Scripture. Just because fallen man, fallen man, not Adam, but us, fallen humans, post-fall, just because we lack the ability to repent and believe does not mean that this obligation or duty to repent and believe is taken away. God does not lower his standard of what he requires simply because of human inability. Um, Andy Nacelli has written a document that you can go find online about compatibilism and, and free will and, and, and things like that. And he has an interesting statement. He says, quote, humans are morally responsible, which requires that they be free. 
There is no biblical reason that God cannot cause real human choices. The Bible grounds human accountability in God's authority as our creator and judge, not in libertarian free will. Now, why do sinners sin? Why do sinners sin? Well, we sin for two reasons. One is by nature and one is by choice. So let me just give you the two reasons biblically that the Bible teaches as why we sin. Number one, the reason we sin is because we have inherited Adam's sin through his federal headship. And Romans 5 is very clear that we are born under condemnation, that we are guilty, that we are under condemnation, that we are born spiritually depraved, and that the reason we sin is because of our nature. We are born in Adam. We are born under God's wrath. We are conceived in sin. So we sin ultimately because it's our nature to do so. Our nature dictates for us the fact that we will sin because we've inherited that nature from Adam. But secondly, why do we sin? We sin voluntarily out of that nature because we want to sin. So yes, we are held accountable for Adam's sin as he was our federal head in the garden, but we also are held accountable for our own sin because we still choose to sin. We still willfully sin. We still voluntarily sin. We still commit sins because of our nature. Now listen to what Jesus said about it. In John 3, 19, 21, these are from the lips of Jesus himself. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People hate the light. People love the darkness because it's their nature to love darkness and they are acting out of their nature as sinners to sin. So here's the rub, here's the controversy, here's the, the point of contention between the differing ways of understanding human ability or lack thereof, spiritual or moral inability. Does God reduce or lessen or lower the duty, the command to obey or do something simply because we lack the ability to do it? Does that mean that the weaker someone is in their sin, the lesser the requirement he or she has to obey? Let's just talk about the biblical revelation for a moment since the fall. Okay, we, we really can't compare our condition with that of Adam. Adam was upright in the garden. Adam had the ability to choose positively. He failed in the garden. We have inherited that sin nature. But let's just ask some questions since the fall. You cannot escape the fact that God has commanded humans to do many things in the Bible that we are, in fact, incapable of doing. So when they say, why would God command us to do something that we're unable to do? God has done it all throughout the Bible. I mean, it's part and parcel of the Bible. All over the place, God is commanding people to do what they cannot do. Let's just think about the greatest commandment for a moment. 
I mean, this goes all the way back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, and then Jesus reiterates it in the Gospels as the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Well, hear, O Israel, the Lord your Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So what is the fundamental greatest commandment that we are to do? We are to love God perfectly with our whole being. So here's the question. Can we possibly do that? Can we love God with all of our whole heart, mind, strength, and soul? Absolutely not. Should we do that? Absolutely. That's binding upon us. That's the greatest commandment. We ought to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But yet you and I know that we cannot do that. Okay, what about the Ten Commandments? God has given us Ten Commandments that we ought to do, that we should do. Do we have the ability to fulfill them? Can we possibly obey them? Not only in outward action, but also in inward obedience of the heart as as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Absolutely not. The law actually shows us our inability to do what God commands. What does God command? God commands complete devotion, complete worship, complete obedience with 100% perfection 100% of the time. That's the standard. Just because we cannot fulfill this demand does not mean that God lowers the standard simply because of our weakness or our inability. This is where, in the Reformed Calvinistic world, covenant theology world, we make a clear distinction between law and gospel, which is somewhat lacking in the non-Reformed world. You kind of have some confusions Um, in dispensationalism, in non-Calvinistic theologies, you don't clearly see this distinction between law and gospel, which is fundamental to a Reformed understanding and worldview. So let's just talk about this because I think it's very helpful in understanding the distinction between law and gospel. What is law? Well, oftentimes we think of the law simply as the Ten Commandments, and that is somewhat true. The Ten Commandments in the Old Testament is God's summary of his moral law that is binding upon all people everywhere. But the law can be defined in Scripture as any imperative or command in Scripture that we are obligated to perform. In other words, God puts duties upon humans in the Bible that we cannot fulfill. So here's the fundamental difference between the Reformed understanding of man's inability and the non-Reformed view. We see the command to repent and believe in Jesus as a universal duty, obligation, imperative put upon all people. It is a summons from a king that demands compliance. When you present the gospel, when the gospel call goes out, it is not a polite invitation that can be refused. 
What's the difference between an invitation and a jury summons? You get an invitation in the mail to a birthday party or to a dinner party or to a graduation party. You can look at it and say, you know, this, this either fits with my schedule or it doesn't. Um, I'm not really friends with those people. I'm not sure why they invited me. You can politely not RSVP and say, you know, we've got other plans. Uh, we're not going to make it. You get a jury summons or you get some type of government summons in the mail, there is the authority of the government behind that demanding your compliance to show up. It's a summons. It's a command. The call to repent and believe is a summons. It is a command. As a matter of fact, all throughout the New Testament, when you look at the calls to repent and believe, They are all in what is called the imperative mood in the Greek language. The imperative mood is simply the mood of command. These are commands that have to be obeyed. These are imperatives placed upon you. These are duties placed upon you that you must fulfill. These are summons that you must obey. It is duty-bound upon all sinners to believe in Jesus. So can we agree that the, imperative in the, the imperatives in the Bible are God's law, that which God demands, that which God prescribes as a duty for us. So when we are to believe in Jesus, it's a command. It's a duty. It's an imperative. It's something that we must do. Jesus said in John 6, 28 through 29, Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? What's the obligation, Jesus? What must we do? What's the imperative? What do we have to do? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what is the moral imperative in order to be saved? You must believe. That's what you must do. It's, It's imperative upon you. 1 John 3, 23. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. What's the commandment? Notice that John frames it, the commandment is to believe. Believing in Jesus is a commandment. It's a law. It's a summons. It's an imperative. Acts 16, 30 through 31. The episode with the Philippian jailer. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What must I do? What's the imperative? And then that that word believe is in the imperative mood. It's incumbent upon you. It's required of you. It's your duty to believe. So you see that there's this duty placed upon all people to believe in Jesus. It's a command. It is Law, if you will. The commandment is to believe in Jesus. It's in the imperative mood. It's also God's command. It's also God's summons. It's also God's duty upon all people to repent as well as believe. Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's in the imperative mood. It's it's incumbent upon you to repent. You're required to repent. Mark 1.15, Jesus came saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These two, these two are together. The word repent and believe, those are in the imperative mood. It's duty bound upon you. You are commanded to repent and believe. 
Acts 3, 19 through 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Again, repent's in the imperative mood. You must repent. Acts 17, 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a command. It's very explicit. Acts 26, 20. I went to Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, this is Paul speaking, and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. They should repent. I mean, we could go on and on, but almost every time you see the call or the summons or the the command to repent and believe, it's in the imperative mood, which means that it is something that you ought to do. It's something that you're duty-bound to do. It's a command that God is commanding you to do. Now, here's the assumption. The assumption is, okay, if God is commanding repentance, if God is commanding belief, if these are demands placed upon us, then we must, therefore, logically, have the ability to fulfill what God is commanding. And we in the reform camp say no. Just because God demands it, because God commands it, because God prescribes it, does not necessarily mean that we have the moral or spiritual ability to fulfill what he demands. What about being born again? It's very interesting. John 3, 3-8, Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus and you have that famous discussion about being born again. Uh, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, I, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, very interestingly, in verse 7, Jesus says, you must be born again. In the Greek construction there, there's that little word day, which in the Greek means it's incumbent, it's imperative. It's an obligation. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, it is a moral obligation upon you to be born again. You must be born again. It's demanded of you. It's commanded of you. Just like the demand to repent and believe, the same demand is placed upon you. You must be born again. Now, obviously, if you took the line of reasoning that the non-Calvinists believe, then you would have to say, okay, if Jesus commands someone to be born again, then he or she must have the ability to born again themselves or to be born again. The same way that they understand the demand placed upon repentance and faith. So, So if God demands repentance, you must be able to repent. If God demands faith, you must be able to have faith. If God demands you be born again, you must have the ability to be born again. But Jesus blows that out of the water in the two verses surrounding verse 7. Verse 6, Jesus says, That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again, but you can't do it. The spirit has to do it. And then in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and he has this whole analogy of of the Holy Spirit being like the wind causing this new birth. So even Jesus himself in this discussion on being born again makes being born again a moral imperative, makes it a command, makes it something that you must do. 
something that must happen to you, but yet Jesus emphatically teaches you don't have the ability to carry it out. And so all throughout the scriptures, we've got these demands placed upon us in relation to salvation, in relation to conversion. You must repent. You must believe. You must be born again. And so therefore, the the argument goes, well, if these are musts, if these are oughts, you ought to, to believe, you ought to repent, you ought to be born again, therefore, you can repent, you can believe, you can be born again in and of yourselves or with simply a provenient grace that assists you or you have the ability to respond when the clear gospel comes to you. So here's the issue. Our moral inability means that we lack the capacity to repent and believe or to come to Christ or to be born again. Jesus very clearly teaches it in John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is probably the clearest passage in Scripture from the lips of Jesus himself on the total inability of humans, morally and spiritually speaking, in their ability or lack thereof to come to Jesus. No one can come. In the original language, that word can is dunamis, which is where we get our word power, literally translated, no one has the power. No one has the ability. No one has the ability to come. Now, notice Jesus says no one may come. It's no one can come. Why can we not come? Well, because we're spiritually unable to do so unless something happens to us. And Jesus answers the question because if you just stopped halfway through the verse, you'd be like, okay, nobody can come. Then how is anybody going to come? If nobody can come, You're called to come. Okay, so so think about the logic here for a moment. You must come to Jesus. You must repent and believe in Jesus. You must be born again. This must happen to you. You have to do it. You have to believe. Okay, the assumption is, well, if God is commanding me to repent and believe, I must be able to do it. What does Jesus say? No one can come to me unless... Something happens to them. What is the unless? Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there is inherent inability to come unless God does a work to actually cause you to come, cause you to repent, cause you to believe. In verse 65, Jesus says, no one can come unless the Father grants him or enables him. The word drawing here is very interesting. It's a strong word in the Greek text. It's the idea that the object being drawn or moved is incapable of coming or propelling itself It's unwilling to do so voluntarily. It cannot. So there has to be an exertion of power on the part of God to move the will of the person. That's what the word draw means, to to move the will or to exert power to enable the person to go forward. 
The person in the flesh, the lost person, the unable person, the one that can't come, they don't want to come to Christ. They don't have the ability to come to Christ. So God must draw them. God must do something in them to propel them to come. In other words, God must overcome that inability. And this drawing is effectual. Now, the reason it's an effectual drawing, or as we would, Calvinists would say, an irresistible, effectual drawing, is because we believe that those whom the Father has given to the Son before the foundation of the world will, in fact, come to Him through the irresistible means of God's drawing. Because the last half of that verse says, I will raise him up on the last day. All those given to Jesus by the Father, all those will come. Why will they come? They will come because they've been drawn. Why can't they come? Because they lack the ability. That inability has to be overcome by God drawing them. And then what's God going to do to all those he draws? He's going to raise them up on the last day. That's why Jesus says later on down in that passage in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The spirit has to give that life. The Holy Spirit has to blow like the wind to cause the new birth. The Holy Spirit has to overcome that deadness. You cannot give yourself life you cannot give yourself the desire or the ability to come because Jesus clearly, emphatically just said, you can't come unless God does this work. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, says, quote, the need for the divine initiative, which draws those whom the Father has given to the Son and enables them to believe, this genuine coming to faith is never finally a matter of autonomous human decision." It's not like you just woke up one day and the gospel was presented to you and you had the ability to come in and of yourself. God has to overcome that deadness. F.F. Bruce, great New Testament scholar, says, quote, None can come to Christ in faith but those who are persuaded and enabled to do so by the Spirit. But all these will come, drawn by the irresistible grace of heavenly love, and none who comes is rejected. I love how Martin Luther describes this passage in his book, The Bondage of the Will. Luther says, quote, When the Father draws and teaches him inwardly, there follows a drawing other than that which is outward. Christ is then displayed by the enlightening of the Spirit, and by it man is rapt to Christ with the sweetest rapture. He being passive while God speaks, teaches, and draws rather than seeking or running himself. Man is passive in this because he's totally unable but once the holy spirit does this work of drawing christ is the sweetest object of your affection so there's this inability now what does the bible say about the degree of the sinfulness of man because you talk to all christians of evangelical stripes except for maybe the pelagian i just interacted with But you talk to traditional Southern Baptists, you talk to Arminians, you talk to other fellow Reformed Calvinists. All of us believe that humans are sinful. All of us believe in total depravity. 
The question is not, are we sinful? The question is, to what degree has the fall of Adam rendered us sinful? Are we so sinful that not only are we totally depraved, but are we so sinful that we're also totally unable to come? Let's just look at some of these passages of Scripture. Romans 3, 11 through 20. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whenever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, Paul is quoting from some Old Testament passages in the Psalms, and I think he's making a universal categorical statement here at the end of an extended argument he's been establishing from Romans chapter 1, and that is both Jew and Gentile are under sin. And prepositions are very important in the Greek language. Being under sin means being under the control of it, under the domination of sin. You can't get out of it. And because you're under sin, because you're in Adam, you don't understand truth. You don't seek God. You don't do good. You don't understand. From your head to your toe, and he goes through all the body parts there, the totality of your being is one of enslavement and hostility and sin before God. Now, a non-Calvinist will stand up and say, yeah, we agree, but let me give you the objection. You, you Calvinist, you take it too far. Yes, you're sinful, but the text basically says we can't fulfill God's law as a means of attaining righteousness. Yeah, we, we grant that, but the text doesn't say that we can't admit that we're sinners and then trust in the one who fulfilled all righteousness. In other words, the non-Calvinist says this text doesn't say anything about inability to repent and believe when the clear revelation of God is given. Now, here's the objection that I keep hearing over and over again. When these passages teach these strong statements about human sin, the objection that always seems to raise is, yeah, it's talking about sin, and yeah, we're enslaved to sin, and yeah, no one understands, but that doesn't mean we can't admit we're in that condition, and we can't admit that we need help. And so, fundamentally, they have somehow truncated conversion to simply admitting that you're a sinner. Admitting that you need help. Now, exegetical study, when you do exegetical study and when you start looking at scriptures and you start looking at context, it's unhelpful to argue from silence on what the text does not say instead of focusing on the burden of what the text is arguing. I think sometimes these non-Calvinists look so much to try to argue what the text doesn't say that they don't feel the full weight of what the text actually does say. I mean, Paul is bending over backwards in this text to talk about the total depravity, inability of humans Yes, to attain righteousness, but also in their spiritual deadness. And so just because the, the non-Calvinists would say, yeah, those things are true, yeah, we're sinful, but that doesn't mean we can't admit it. 
That means we can't, doesn't mean that we can't, when God's clear revelation is given to us, that doesn't mean we can't just repent and believe and admit that we need help. What I want to do now is go to Romans chapter 8, because this is a passage of Scripture that the non-Calvinists will say, yeah, that's your proof text, Scripture. Uh, Calvinists pr- like to proof text Romans 8, and, and, and Romans 8 doesn't teach total inability the way that, that, that they think it does. So let's go to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9, and let's just, let's just study this passage of Scripture. Now, obviously, we're coming into Paul's larger argument. He's, he's, he's given us a full, sustained argument in chapter 7 about this struggle between um, the flesh and the spirit, and then he starts chapter 8 with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the, the beginning of chapter 8, Paul is making a clear distinction between those that are lost and those that are saved, those that are in the flesh, those that are in the spirit. So let's read together Romans 8, verses 5 through 9. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. What Paul is doing in this passage of Scripture is contrasting two types of people. There's only two divisions of people that the Bible knows of. There's there's only two people, those in the flesh versus those in the spirit, those in Adam versus those in Christ, those who are dead in their set trespasses and sins and those who are alive in Christ. In other words, those who are lost and unregenerate versus those who are saved and regenerate. There's only two categories, lost and saved. The Bible knows of no third category like a carnal Christian or a, or a Christian that supposedly acts like a, an unregenerate person. And so Paul's making a distinction between not different types of Christians, but between fundamentally lost people and fundamentally saved people. And so what he's going to talk about here, and this is where we're going to spend time on it, what is the condition, the spiritual condition of those who are lost according to this passage of scripture well let's just give a couple of of observation first of all the phrase that's used over and over again is in the flesh according to the flesh the prepositions again are important It, it means a total domination by indwelling sin as a condition it's not something you float in and out of it's the it's the ultimate defining condition of the lost person's life they are fundamentally in the flesh amounts in his commentary on romans in this context to be in the flesh means to be dominated by indwelling sin Flesh refers not simply to sexual sins, but to the entire range of self-centered activities that deny God his rightful place in one's life, to be dominated. Now, back in chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, 4 and 5, Paul has already introduced this concept. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While we were living in the flesh. So before you were a Christian, you were living in the flesh. You were in the flesh. You were dominated by the flesh. You were unregenerate. So that's what Paul's talking about. Now, another thing that you want to observe from this passage of Scripture is that all the verbs in this passage are in present tense, which, just, which means it's an ongoing present condition. It's not necessarily talking about something that's going to happen in the future, which is true about spiritual death, but these are things that are going on right now in the life of a non-Christian due to their nature. Now, what are the four descriptions here of an unregenerate person that Paul describes here? Paul, first of all, says their mind is death. They're spiritually dead. Notice it's in the present tense. Some translations mistranslate this. They actually say it leads to death. But that's not a good translation. Actually, it's in the present tense. It should literally be translated the way the ESV does. Their mind is death. Now, eventually, if you die in your sins, you're going to face eternal death in hell. But the way Paul constructs this in the present tense verb is that right now, the mind of a lost person is death. And this corroborated in other places like in Ephesians 2 where Paul says we are spiritually dead. So the, the unregenerate person's mind, their way of thinking, their condition is death. Not only that, and by the way, we often look at this and, and, and we, we kind of downplay sin. Some people say, well, you know, sinners just, they lack information. Sinners, they're not as bad as they seem. They kind of have some problems or issues or baggage here and there. Um, they're not as sinful as they could be. Paul is blowing that narrative out of the water by using some of the strongest language he can use to describe the condition the nature of an unregenerate person. So not only is their mind spiritually dead right now, they're spiritually, they're, there's death. But number two description, he says they are hostile to God. Now, now that word hostile evokes images of, of warfare, of enmity, of, of hatred. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. They're hostile. They hate God. We don't often like to think in terms of this as a lost person. A lost person hates God. Now, they may not outwardly say that, but in the depth of their soul, they resent their creator telling them how to live. They are born haters of God. And I often hear these traditionalist Southern Baptists and non-Calvinists say, you Calvinists believe that mankind is born God-haters. They, they hate God from the very beginning, and, 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 and it's something that, that you're born with. And they'll say, no, it's not something you're born with. You can grow calloused over time. 
You can reject the advances of God and, and through judicial hardening, you can put yourself in a position where you've basically hardened yourself and become callous and then you end up being hostile to God over time because you've rejected him. Nowhere in this text does it say anything about growing calloused over time or judicial hardening. Paul is not talking about something that happens over a long period of time. Nowhere in the text do you see that. You have to import that into the text. Paul is making a distinction between the overall fundamental condition of a lost person and the overall fundamental condition of a saved person. And this fundamental condition is is from birth that... He argued all the way back in Romans chapter 5 that we've inherited from Adam. You're either born in Adam or you're saved and in Christ. Everyone comes into the earth born in Adam. This this condition is fundamental, this, this hostility. Nowhere in the text do we find anybody growing calloused over time. This is a present, ongoing condition of every unregenerate person. It's universal. They're hostile to God. They're at enmity with God. They hate God. Paul says in Colossians 1, 21 through 22, and you who were once, okay, he's talking about our former life, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You were once hostile in mind, the same language there. You're hostile. Okay, what's the third description? Well, the sinful person cannot submit to God's law. Not only does he not want to, but he cannot. He lacks the spiritual and moral ability. Now again, this inability is in a present tense verb. It shows the condition or lifestyle, the ongoing condition, the present ongoing condition of one who's in the flesh. They can't submit to God's law. Okay, what does this mean? What is submission to God's law? Is this simply that a lost person cannot fulfill the obligations of the Ten Commandments? Well, yes, but there's more to it. Like I said earlier, God's law refers to any command placed upon a person in which he is obligated to perform. So let's ask the question. We've we've built the case earlier in the podcast on this. Is repenting and believing part of God's law? Absolutely. Are they duties placed upon all people everywhere? Are they commands? Are repenting and believing part of God's law? Yes. Yes. So we cannot submit ourselves to what God commands. And what does God command? God commands repentance. God demands believing. God God demands the spiritual turning to him. And so what Paul is saying is we cannot submit ourselves to that. We lack the ability. We lack the power. We are spiritually and morally unable to do anything spiritually positive due to being in the flesh. It's our condition before salvation. It's hostility of mind. Again, notice that there's nothing in this text that talks about growing hardened over time. There's nothing in this text that talks about growing calloused. Paul is using present tense verbs to talk about the condition, the fundamental condition between a lost person and a saved person. Okay, let's look at the last description. The sinful person in the flesh cannot please God. 
Okay, think about Paul's train of thought. First, their, their mind is death. They're spiritually dead. Number two, they're hostile. They're enmity. They're, they hate God. Number three, they cannot submit to God's law. And then to add insult to injury, the fourth thing he says here is they cannot please God. Now, why would Paul repeat the inability here? Didn't he already say sinners cannot submit to God's law? I mean, wouldn't that be enough? Why add the second issue, they cannot please God? Well, the word please means to win favor, to bring satisfaction, to be worthy. What Paul is doing is he's working overtime in this passage of Scripture to compound human inability by adding this final description. So let's just ask the question, what pleases God? Well, obviously, obedience to his law, keeping the Ten Commandments, loving him with our whole soul, heart, mind, and strength, repenting and believing, being born again. All those things please God. So can an unregenerate person in the flesh who's spiritually dead and whose mind is hostile to God, can he do those things according to Paul? No. God has commanded repentance and faith as duties placed upon all humans, and that pleases God for humans to submit to his will. But right here, Paul says they can't do it. So we cannot repent and believe in the flesh as those whose minds are hostile to God. Now, does God lower the expectation simply because we lack the ability? No, he still demands repentance and faith. Again, mounts, um, and unless you have any questions, this is the New American Commentary, which is basically the Southern Baptist Commentary. Quote, Mount says, Not only are persons apart from Christ totally depraved, i.e. every part of their being has been affected by the fall, but also totally disabled in their rebellious state, they cannot please God. So here you have the New American Commentary, the, the famous Southern Baptist Commentary, the, the scholar Mounts affirming both total depravity and total inability. John Murray. Now, obviously, John Murray's a Calvinist, but he's written a very exegetically sound commentary on Romans. He states this, quote, In the whole passage, we have the biblical basis for the doctrines of total depravity and total inability. Quote, enmity against God is nothing other than total depravity, and, quote, cannot please God is nothing less than total inability. Let's listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Of course, Martin Lloyd-Jones is going to give you exactly what he thinks and no holds barred. So in his commentary on Romans, Lloyd-Jones says, quote, The natural man, this man after the flesh, this unbeliever, cannot believe in God. He cannot believe in and on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is at enmity against him. He hates him. He's altogether opposed to him. He is shut out from his life. He lacks a spiritual faculty. He is incapable of spiritual good. Neither indeed can be. He's completely helpless. He cannot choose to love God. You cannot love God and hate him at the same time. Why should a man who is at enmity to and a hater of God decide suddenly to love him? There's no reason. His whole nature is against him. His whole bias, his whole bent, everything in him is opposed to God. He is in complete and entire helplessness. He's dead, and there's nothing more final than that. Okay, tell us what you really think, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. 
Okay, if that were not convincing enough, let me just give you the non-Calvinist objection. Because they'll object to what I've just gone through exegetically in this passage. They'll say, yes, but this text doesn't teach how a person goes from being in the flesh to being in the spirit. It just talks about the condition of a lost person. It it doesn't talk about how when God's gracious appeal to be saved is presented, you have the ability because of the bare gospel to repent and believe. This is not teaching total inability. This is just teaching total depravity. Well, verse 2 in Romans 8 actually answers that question. The question is, how does one go from being in the flesh to being in the spirit? Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The Holy Spirit has set you free. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones again. He says, quote, How then does anyone become a believer? The answer has already been given in verse 2, and we shall proceed to work it out. The law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath set me free. I've not done it. It's been done to me. It's God's action. By grace are you saved through faith, and that out of yourselves. It's the gift of God. We can do nothing. It is all of God. And let us thank God that it is so, for it is because it is all of God that it is certain, it is safe, it is sure. We are not just believers. We have been made anew, born again. We're in the realm of the spiritual. We've been put there. We are in Christ. The Spirit of God has incorporated us into Him. It is His action. Okay. The way that you go from being in the flesh to being in the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit sets you free. The Holy Spirit causes you to be born again. The Father draws you. I mean, you can't get over these passages of Scripture. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can't do it. The Holy Spirit must do it for you. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That drawing has to happen. Paul says here, you're hostile in mind, you're dead. You can't come, you can't submit. The Spirit has to set you free. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at the work and sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. We were dead in sin. We, we walked according to our flesh. We were, we were in the flesh. Paul is talking here in Ephesians the same way he talks about it in Romans 8, just in a little bit different language. We're spiritually dead. We're in the flesh. We're dominated by Satan. We're dominated by our passions. We follow the course of the world. It's all this condition of the lost person. We're children of wrath. Okay, so let's just concede with our non-Calvinist brothers, that Romans 8 simply teaches total depravity, but it doesn't teach total inability. And and the passage doesn't teach how one goes from being in the flesh to being in the Spirit. Let's just concede that, even though I think verse 2 does teach that the Holy Spirit has to do it. You don't do it. The Holy Spirit does it. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, does tell us. Paul has just laid the case in verses 1 through 3 that we're spiritually dead. We're hostile. We're walking according to the flesh. We're dominated by Satan. We're dominated by our our flesh. We're dominated by the world. We're children of wrath. Then in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made 
us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So how do you go from being spiritually dead? How do you go from being in the flesh? What has to happen to you? God has to make you alive. God has to overcome that spiritual inability and do a work of making you alive. Okay, so what are all the different metaphors we've seen? Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus says you must be born again. The Spirit has to sovereignly blow and give you life. In John 6, the Father has to draw you. The Father has to grant that life. The Spirit has to give life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 2, the Spirit has to set you free. In Ephesians chapter 4, God has to make you alive. Notice that in none of these cases does it say that you have the ability to make yourself alive. You have the ability to believe. You have the ability to repent. You have the ability to do this. God must do it. And that's why in the Reformed view, we see clearly the teachings of total inability and God's sovereign work to overcome that to ensure that we do, in fact, come. So God gives us the gifts of repentance and faith. So, so if we're commanded to repent and we're commanded to believe and yet we cannot repent and we cannot believe, how are we going to do it? Well, God has to grant it. God has to draw. The Holy Spirit has to make alive. And the Bible is very clear that God gives repentance and faith as gifts. He grants those to us. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God grants the gift of faith. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer, that you should be granted the gift of faith. You look at um, Acts 5.31, Acts 11.18, it talks about repentance being granted as a gift. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says God may perhaps grant repentance. Um, I've heard the non-Calvinist objection that, yeah, God grants the opportunity for you to repent and believe, they see it more as God granting an opportunity or God granting you the ability to, to, to repent and believe whether you, you know, if you want to or not. They don't see it as an effectual granting that when God actually grants the gift, it's a gift that gives you the ability to actually do what God grants effectually. So the, the question then becomes the, the two issues here as we kind of wrap this up. How dead and spiritually and morally unable are sinners in reality, according to the biblical revelation? That's the, the ultimate question. The question becomes, are humans simply totally depraved, or are they both totally depraved and totally unable to come? That's question number one. Question number two, how does one go from being in the flesh to being in the Spirit. In other words, how does one go from being lost to being saved? Does God effectually and irresistibly cause that to happen through sovereign regeneration, granting the gifts of repentance and faith? Or does God simply come with the gracious gospel appeal and that's enough for you to respond because you have the ability to do so with libertarian free will once that's given to you? Well, obviously the Calvinist would say we are both totally depraved and totally unable and that, yes, we need the gospel, 
But God uses the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit in effectual calling and sovereign regeneration to overcome that inability and actually to grant life. God spiritually imparts that ability into us that was not there before. Interestingly, if you go back and you look at some of the passages about the new covenant, what does God promise he's going to do? He's going to write the law on our hearts. Think about it this way. God's law commands repentance and faith. It's his law. It's his command. He demands it. Yet we in our hearts have the inability to fulfill what he commands. We can't do it. But when God comes and writes his law on our hearts, when he comes and opens our eyes, when he comes and sovereignly regenerates us, he writes the law in our hearts, which is a metaphor for saying he overcomes that inability to fulfill what God requires and grants us the ability by writing the law in our hearts so that we can fulfill what God commands, i.e. we can repent and believe. And that's why Augustine's famous line, grant what you command and command what you will. God gives us the ability to do what he commands. The question for you is, which is the biblical revelation? Which is the testimony of Scripture that is the most consistent? You need to make that decision. And so the reason that I did this podcast is because I wanted to clearly and exegetically demonstrate why we believe in total inability and also to answer some of the objections that the non-Calvinists have. And the, the, the basic objection I've heard is, well, those verses do teach sinfulness, but they don't teach that you can't admit. Well, I think we've truncated conversion to simply admitting. I just admit that I'm a sinner. That's not conversion. Admitting that you're a sinner is not conversion. Conversion is repenting and believing in Christ. And how can that happen if you're spiritually dead unless God implants life into you? And so conversion is more than just admitting your need or admitting your condition or, or agreeing with God that you're, that you're that way. Conversion is an radical change, an inward transformation of being born again, of being made alive, all the metaphors God gives, writing his law on your heart. In other words, God grants what he commands. What does God command? You must repent. You must believe. You must be born again. Can we do that? No. God must grant that ability. How does he grant it? He grants it through sovereign regeneration. He opens blind eyes. He takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. He makes us alive. He causes us to be born again. He grants us the gifts of repentance and faith so that we will infallibly and irresistibly come because no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Understanding Christianity. It's been a while since I've delved into the waters of the whole reformed, non-reformed 
differences and maybe some controversies there. If you have questions or comments and you'd like to contact me, you can go to seancole.net. All my contact information is there as well as other audio and video. You can find the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. Uh, You can also go on iTunes and give us a positive review and, and rating. And so I appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus?